This evening in your Bible congregation, we would encourage you to turn to Genesis 1, verse 26 through 31, and then also Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now you can find the Genesis 1 reference on page 2 in your pew Bible. After we read from that selection of Scripture, we'll also be turning our attention to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 3, in your Forms and Prayers book. You can find this on page 203. A word of explanation, perhaps for those who are unfamiliar with our practice, why we use the Heidelberg Catechism. We believe that it is a faithful summary of the Word of God. Of course, it is not the Word of God, but we believe that it faithfully summarizes what the Bible has to teach. And you'll notice when we look in the Heidelberg Catechism that there are numerous scriptural references. Uh, That list is not exhaustive, but rather selective, and it's there to show that we believe that what the Catechism is saying is summarizing biblical truth. And we use the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism to guide our more topical sermons, more doctrinal theological sermons to, so to speak, safeguard ourselves, to make sure that all of the major doctrinal teachings of the Bible are covered in a systematic, rather routine way. Uh, Because left to ourselves, I have to admit, uh, the most common topic for preaching perhaps would not necessarily be man's misery. Uh, And the most popular preaching might not consider these types of teachings, but as we are led Lord's Day by Lord's Day, through the summary of the Word of God, as we have it in the, Bel- or the Heidelberg Catechism, rather, uh, we come to Lord's Day 3, which does deal with man's misery. And that's why we've chosen to read from Genesis 1, verse 26 through 31, then also from Genesis 3, 1 through 7. So we read in Genesis 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, for you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Then we'll drop down to Genesis 3, and we'll read the first seven verses. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her 
and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Thus far our reading from the Word of God. For now we then turn to Lord's Day 3. Question 6 asks, did God create man so wicked and perverse? And the answer, no, God created man good and in his own image, that is in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God his Creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Question 7 then asks, then where does man's corrupt nature come from? And the answer from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. Question 8 then asks, but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? And the answer, yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. A congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, many of you at some level have perhaps asked yourself, what is wrong with me? The occasion might have simply been a common illness, such as the common cold. Uh, Perhaps some of you uh, have in recent years battled through uh, the COVID pandemic. Others of you have had more serious illnesses uh, and diseases. And when they first come on with a variety of symptoms, you might ask yourself, what is wrong with me? Why is it that my muscles don't function the way they used to? Why is it that I experience uh, this in my body or, or this in my mind? Perhaps some of you also have those types of questions when it comes to anxieties, fears, doubts even the darkness of depression. And perhaps you ask yourself, what is wrong with me? I again have to confess that I am not a doctor, nor do I pretend to be a doctor, but I do believe that good doctoring, if you're going to prescribe a remedy, must be very, very careful to correctly identify the disease. And and that's exactly what the Scriptures do, and that's exactly what our Heidelberg Catechism does as it faithfully summarizes the teachings of Scriptures, helps us correctly identify what is wrong with us. Spiritually speaking, what is the, the root cause, so to speak, of our miserable condition and state by nature? And in doing so, Uh, The Bible and also our catechism takes us back to the beginning. I want to just say a word to the boys and the girls and also the young people. You are taught in your homes by your moms and your dads and in your schools, I trust, by your teachers. You are taught in Sunday school. In fact, kindergartners, your teacher even shared that you talked about these things this very morning about how God created Adam and Eve, and how God created Adam and Eve good, holy, upright. And then you are taught also in the preaching of the Word, in addition to Sunday school and the teachings in school and your parents and your grandparents, you are taught that Satan came 
uh, and tempted Adam and Eve, and that Adam and Eve sinned, and by that sin they fell into a state of sin. Now, I want to tell you that many, many, many other voices are going to come and say that didn't really happen. Or at least they're going to say that didn't really happen the way that your mom and dad say it happened, or the way that your teachers say it happened, or the way that your Sunday school teachers, or the way that your minister says it happens. I can't stop those voices from saying it didn't really happen that way, but I can tell you that what God says in His Word is absolute truth. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, the entirety of the Word of God is just that, the Word of God. And it's true beyond any shadow of a doubt. So don't listen to the lie of Satan that continues to come throughout the ages and ask, has God really said? And then goes on to say, you will not surely die. Rather, with simple, humble hearts of faith, let us listen to the Word of God as it reveals to us the ultimate cause of our misery. And that you'll see if you follow along in the bulletin outline is our theme for tonight's address. We'll look at the cause of my misery, first of all, knowing that we were created in God's image. And then secondly, knowing that we were fallen in Adam's sin. And then thirdly, knowing that we are depraved in our soul's extent. So the cause of my misery is that I was created in God's image, but I have fallen in or through Adam's sin. And therefore, by nature, apart from redeeming grace, I am depraved in my very soul extent. So first of all, we know our misery when we understand that we were originally created in God's image. And we just again underscore the importance of what we call the historical, literal interpretation of the narrative, the historical narrative. And for those of you who perhaps have uh, more questions about what type of genre of Scripture this is, Genesis 1, Genesis 3, Genesis 1 through 11, the entire book of Genesis is the genre that we call historical narrative. It's not some type of vision. It's not the same genre as the book of Revelation, but God is simply describing the events that took place in historical fashion in the origin of all things. And we notice that man, humanity, the word man is used generically here to represent both genders or both sexes, male and female. Genesis 1 verse 26 is very, very clear on these things. God created man or mankind. God created humanity by beginning with two persons, by beginning with two genders or sexes, which we use interchangeably as synonymous terms, male and female, He created them. And we need to understand what it means that humanity is made in the image of God. Boys and girls, there is a world of difference between a human person and an animal. Now, I know puppy dogs are cute, and maybe you even think kitty cats are nice. And I love to see the cattle on a thousand hills, especially this time of year as they go out uh, and they find their daily nourishment. But there is a world of difference between a human being and an animal. 
And at the very heart essence of it, the difference is this, that only human beings have a soul. Only human beings have a soul. And included in that soul is what we call moral capacity. Human beings are most unique in creation that they alone bear the image of God. The cattle on a thousand hills do not bear the image of God. The kitty cats and the puppy dogs do not bear the image of God. But humanity does. Reflecting something of God's very nature in the sense that human beings with their soul have a moral capacity. They have a moral capacity because human beings have a rational mind. Given the ability in creation uh, to reason, to think, to know, to understand truth, uh, to trace out the implications of truth. And so we see this even as Adam engages in his activities prior uh, to the fall and naming the animals. Uh, Adam had an ability with his rational mind in its unfallen condition in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to, to know something of the will of God and to perceive something of the truth of God also as it applied to the so-called natural realm. And so you will not find the animals naming the animals, but rather mankind naming the animals. And not only a rational mind, but also a volitional will. Certainly animals uh, act according to their own nature, instinctively we might say, but animals do not have the ability to exercise a volitional will, to desire to follow the truth. To desire by an act of the will to please their Creator by obeying His commandments. So humanity is distinct from creation in the sense that they alone have moral capacity with a rational mind, a volitional will, and also emotional affections. Now you might say, well, kitty cats and puppy dogs, they also are affectionate beings, but not at the same level of humanity. Human beings have unique capacity prior to the fall to live in relationship, loving the Lord their God. And loving Adam and Eve loved one another as fellow image bearers of the Lord their God. And so when we think about creation, first of all, the most important distinction that we must never lose sight of is the fact that there is a distinction between the Creator and the created, between God and everything else. God alone is infinite. Everything else is finite. But then in the created realm, which includes all things that exist apart from God, there is also another distinction that we must maintain based upon the revelation of the Word of God, and that is between humanity, which alone bears the image of God, and the rest of created realm, which, yes, testifies to the glory of God, but does not bear the image of God. And just in passing, and we attempt to exercise some restraint, uh, for time's sake, but this is part of what makes the horrific sin of abortion so blatantly evil. Boys and girls, you know maybe also if you see a spider in the garage, what do you do? Well, at least what do I do when my wife tells me to do? I, I step on the spider. And that's perfectly morally justifiable to protect her from whatever the spider might do. But that spider doesn't bear the image of God. And from the very moment of conception, human life bears the image of God. 
all human life bears the image of God. And you have to do gymnastics when it comes to the interpretation of the Bible to get away from the implication of that. From the moment of conception, human life bears the image of God. Prior to the fall, in addition to this moral capacity, humanity had a moral ability which included a true knowledge and true righteousness and true holiness. So, Adam did not know everything infinitely as God did, but everything Adam knew, he knew rightly. We make a distinction again, and we don't want to get overly complicated in this evening's sermon or in all of these evening sermons uh, by looking at the differences between how God knows things and how humanity knows things, uh, but we just simply say it this way, God knows everything without ever having learned anything. God knows everything actual, everything possible, but He has never been taught anything. No one ever said to God, look at this, and God then came to increased knowledge. We, on the other hand, all of our knowledge is derived knowledge. Everything that we know, we know by virtue of our being created in the image of God. The knowledge that we have that is inherent, but also the knowledge that we have that is acquired. And so the point is that Adam, along with Eve, prior to the fall, and we just note also that they both bore the image of God, and they both bore the image of God equally. Yes, they are distinct in their gender or in their sex, and yes, they are distinct in their gifts, talents, roles, in a biblically understood complementarianism, but both of them equally bore the image of God. And that understanding is the best understanding to appreciate both genders. And so the church, when she understands that male, female equally bear the image of God and therefore are equal in inherent value in the presence of God, that does away uh, with the gross sins of perhaps some type of male chauvinism or ungodly feminism. Male and female, equally bearing the image of God, knowing God truly, and also then serving God faithfully. And so, humanity had a moral responsibility and has. Notice I use past tense and present tense. Adam and Eve and all of the human race had a moral responsibility, and it was simply this, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism also summarizes it, what was and what is the chief end of man? What is humanity to do? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so, man with his body and with his soul, with his mind, with his will, with his affections, with the knowledge that he had, with the righteousness that he had, with the holiness that he had, he was to give the entirety of his being and the entirety of his life into the service and into the fellowship of his Creator, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you see, it's only when you begin to understand and to appreciate the original intention of our design that you can then begin to understand something in the depths of our misery. If we say that we are just simply the product of a bunch of molecules and random acts and time, well then no wonder the culture doesn't understand what our purpose is. And this is some of the devastating effects of the lie of our culture. 
And even the higher educators, they come and they tell our children, they tell our young people, you are nothing more than a collection of molecules put together randomly in chance, and then we wonder why they are filled with despair and why the suicide rate increases. But you see, if we tell our children and our young people, and if we remind ourselves that we were created unique, that we have a soul, that we bear the image of God, and that our purpose was originally to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now there is purpose. But we are still confronted with the question and the reality that by ourselves we are unable to fulfill that purpose. And that's part of what's wrong with us. Which brings us into our second point. Yes, mankind was created in God's image and still in the fallen condition bears something of God's image, yet fallen in Adam's sin. Now here we might say, well, what does Adam have to do with us? What does Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, what does that have to do with us in the year of our Lord 2022? We need to understand the connection between Adam and the rest of humanity. And just a note, the Hebrew word from Adam, the name given to that first human being, the name itself means mankind. So when you see boys and girls in your Bible, Adam, just think also Yes, this is one person, a historical person, a person who actually lived in time, created by an immediate act of God, but his name meant mankind. And don't listen for a moment to those who come, even underneath the umbrella of the broader church, and say, well, it was really not just two human beings for which everything originated was. There were these pro-humanists. And, and, and they talk, and, and you just simply want to step back and say, are you serious? You want me to believe your theory of the origins of the human race? Don't listen to them for a moment. Go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and understand it as Christ himself understood it. The human race began when God formed out of the dust of the earth a body and breathed into it the soul, and Adam became a living being. And then from the rib of Adam, by another miraculous act of creation, Eve was brought forth. And thus the human race began. So there is what we call an organic solidarity of the human race. A, a, a big term, and you can maybe put it in your mind or put it on your notes, but a more simpler understanding is, is this. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve. That's all we mean by an organic solidarity. Every single human being who has ever existed or who will, will ever exist uh, would trace their lineage eventually back through all of the generations and come to Adam. And even you see this in some of the chronologies in the Bible. Everything traces itself back to Adam, the Son of God. Not the eternal Son of God, the created Son of God. And so there is this organic solidarity of the human race so that Adam's sin 
impacts us and affects us, but not only by the way of this organic solidarity, but also because Adam, as the first human being, stood in a peculiar position in relationship to God, a peculiar position which we call uh, the covenant representative or the federal representative. Uh, And here perhaps we should evaluate and feel free to to talk with me at some point or email me or call me or talk to your parish elder. Uh, We need to evaluate how thoroughly we understand covenant theology. Yes, certainly the covenant of grace, but also the covenant, and it's been described with various terms, the covenant of works, the covenant of life, the covenant of Eden, the covenant of paradise. But that relationship that Adam existed in before the fall was a covenantal relationship. And in that covenant relationship, Adam not only represented himself as an individual person, but he also represented the entirety of the human race, all of his descendants. And his actions had legal implications for all of his descendants. So based upon the probationary command, which is a phrase which we give to the command, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the probationary command. That was the test that God in His sovereignty gave to Adam. And when Adam, through the influence of Satan and through the instrumentality of Eve, but when Adam as the federal head, the federal representative disobeyed that probationary command. He violated the covenant of works or the covenant of life, whatever term you want to give it, and he brought the entirety of the human race into a state of death because God had said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, Adam didn't physically come to the point of the full realization of physical death, his body began to die at that moment, but he spiritually died by nature apart from God's redeeming grace. And so also Eve. Now, we might say, this isn't fair. I can remember thinking this when I I was a child. It's, It's not fair that Adam did that, and I'm therefore born, conceived and born in sin subject to all manner of miseries, even to condemnation itself. But it is fair. Some analogies are, and we hope that this doesn't happen, but if we as a nation come to the point of declaring war by an act of Congress, if it's done legally, the president seeks the act of Congress to declare war against a foreign enemy. And when such a declaration is made, every single American citizen, whether they agree with it or not, is at war. You also might think, and these are just analogies, so don't go too far with them, but you might think of a sporting event. The coin toss before a football game. It's not as if the whole team goes out there and everyone calls individually whether they want heads or tails. But the team sends out representatives. And the representatives call heads or tails. And the entire team is represented by those persons. We also have this in our own governmental system. And so we elect representatives. As we are a federation. 
And so there are these analogies, these illustrations that, that show forth this truth that when Adam stood before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he stood before it representing the entirety of the human race and he failed the test by his sinful act of rebellion. And Romans 5 verse 12 should be a text that we referred to frequently. Uh, so jot it in your mind or in your notes. We quoted it a week ago. We quote it again. There the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, just as though, just, so, just, so, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And the Apostle Paul says, through one man. So if you believe that the human race began with one man, you are in good company, the company of Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul, and including all of the other saints of the Scriptures. But through that one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And in that way, and in that manner, death spread to all men, because all sinned. When Adam sinned, all sinned. Because of our understanding, the biblical understanding of the doctrine of Adam's covenantal representation. And what that means is that guilt is imputed. The guilt of violating the commandment of God is imputed. So that we became guilty in our state before Almighty God. And not only guilty in our state, but also corrupt in our condition. And that's why David can say in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, now, David's not referring to some act of immorality, of a violation of the seventh commandment uh, on the part of his mother in, in the act of conception. What David is saying is that he realizes and he recognizes the reality of this covenantal representation that from the very moment of conception, he was sinful in application to his state of guilt and his condition of iniquity. And so he was brought forth, referring there uh, to the process not only of conception but of birth, I was brought forth in iniquity. Again, not that his parents committed iniquity in the act of childbirth, not that his, his mother somehow, uh, no doubt she was a sinner, as we all are, but David is not saying, you know, when my mother came into labor, uh, she grossly violated one of the moral commandments of God. No, what David is saying in Psalm 51 verse 5 is that from the very moment of conception and the very moment of his birth, as a son of Adam, as we all are, he's brought forth in a state of death, spiritual death, guilty, totally depraved totally unable and unwilling to do anything good. And these truths, congregation, must be theologically known so that they can be experientially experienced and felt and confessed and acknowledged. It is not enough for us just simply to say, yes, we know our covenant theology very well, thank you, on our way. But rather that we might join with David and say, yes, I know my covenant theology so well in my heart that I also cry out, Lord, I was conceived in sin, and I was brought forth in iniquity. I'm a child of Adam by nature. I have no hope, and I have no plea apart from the work of redeeming grace. And that ties into our third point, 
depraved in my soul's extent, a pervasive depravity. We learn in our catechism instruction and hopefully also in the instruction that we receive in schooling and at home about total depravity. That does not mean that every single member of the human race is as grossly wicked as they could perhaps possibly be. There are restraints in place that curb men's expressions of wickedness. What does total depravity mean? That apart from God's grace, all of me is infected with sin. There are those times in which individuals are diagnosed with cancer. And the first question that is on the mind is how pervasive is it? Is it contained to one small spot, easily easily treated, maybe by radiation, chemotherapy, surgery? But there are also those times in which the report is It's spread. Spread from one organ to another organ. Spread from one lymph node to another lymph node. And when you hear that, then your heart really sinks. Well, here's the sad reality concerning sin. It's everywhere. And I'm not referring to out there in the world. I'm referring to in here. My mind, my will, my affections, my soul, my thoughts, my inclinations, my desires, apart from God's grace, completely infected with sin. This is what's so alarming at times when you hear people banter back and forth about total depravity. You don't hear people banter back and forth about terminal cancer that's spread throughout the entirety of a person's organs. We dare not banter about total depravity. We ought to humbly acknowledge that's us by nature. That's all of us by nature. Well, you might say, time's coming near to the end of the sermon, are you really going to leave us with this news report? And the answer is no. Certainly the catechism is not inspired. So we need to be careful about making much of words, of one word. But I want to point you to one word in the catechism and then trace its truth back to one passage in Scripture. And that word is found In beginning there, in question eight, are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Yes. And then that one word, unless. Unless. Unless what? Unless we morally improve ourselves? No. Unless we engage in some types of legalistic achievements? No. Unless we have more spiritual insight? than our neighbors and our co-workers? No, unless we are born again. And you'll notice their reference made to John 3. John 3, Nicodemus comes, a teacher of Israel, and Jesus instructs him, 
And Jesus says to Nicodemus, a person, because of the impact of sin, cannot even perceive, understand, nor enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. Born from above, born by the Spirit, unless redeeming grace implants new spiritual life into the dead soul. And so the first thing I want to point out is that the unless of question and answer eight is the unless of John 3. And these are the truths that we also profess this evening. There is a remedy. The remedy is not found in any type of self-improvement nor moralistic, therapeutic, deist type of a concept. The remedy is found in the supernatural intervention of God's redeeming grace. I, you, we, all of us by nature are dead unless we are born again. Unless the Spirit takes the Word of God and blesses even the foolishness of preaching, blesses it to the point in which our soul comes to new spiritual life. And now the difficult thing of Lord's Day 3 is that we have to only open the door a a, a bit for time's sake and for purpose's sake. These concepts, these truths will be unfolded in future upcoming Lord's Days. Allow me simply to conclude this. The prognosis of our condition apart from God's redemptive grace, is a most devastating one. But there is a remedy. And isn't that what the ear really wants to hear when the doctor calls and says it's cancer? The first question, generally speaking, is how pervasive has it spread? The second question is is there a treatment? So the bad news tonight, you might say, is it's pervasive. Sin infects all of us. The good news is there is a remedy. The remedy is the regenerating grace of our God. So thanks be to God. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we have peered into deep and mysterious truths uh, truths which go beyond our own comprehension, our own understanding. And so we especially pray that we might have humble hearts that will submit to the revelation of your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that we might rightly know our sin and our misery, not that we might end there, but then we might also rightly know grace and mercy, which has been given unto us and revealed unto us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we come to a greater knowledge of these things, may we also come to a greater appreciation of what you have done for us in and through the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.